This episode discusses sexual abuse and assault. Listener discretion is advised. Kim Gautier and T.J. Weber's relationship was on again, off again. They would fight, break up, and then reconcile, with T.J. claiming he was a changed man. What Kim didn't know was that T.J. was keeping a secret. A secret that would turn him from an abuser into a killer. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back. Thank you for being here. Remember that Crime Lines is both a podcast and now a YouTube channel. So please subscribe everywhere you find the show, whether it's a podcast app or on YouTube, so that you know what cases I cover. Or you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook, which is where I usually remember to announce my new episodes. I am going to recommend that if you want to contact me directly, though, that you go through email, which is crimelinespodcast at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on my website, which is basementfortproductions.com. I have realized that every social media platform filters out messages. To see the good messages that were accidentally filtered out, I have to scroll through the ones that were filtered out for a reason. And then that means there's really no point in having that filtering feature if I'm going to have to see everything anyway. It is really a mess and one I don't want to deal with. So I have just stopped checking the filtered messages, which wasn't hard because I usually forgot to anyway. So email is a much better way to reach me. It's also easier for me to trace you should you send me a photograph of a part of your body that I have no interest in seeing and then I can forward it to your mother. So, okay, let's get on to today's episode. This case was recommended by Valkyrie. Thank you for sending the suggestion. Anyone who sends in a suggestion, I do keep track on a rapidly growing spreadsheet, and I appreciate the ideas since I am now putting out so much content. I appreciate the help there. The bulk of the information in this episode does come from publicly available court documents. So let's start with the Gautier family. And I am going to apologize in advance if I am saying their last name wrong. I could not find any video or news coverage online talking about this case. And I know that Godier is a way to pronounce this last name. If you're in Mississippi, Gautier is the name of that town. I've also heard that Gautier is another pronunciation here in the United States. So I really don't know which one they used, and I am making a educated guess. So let's talk about the Godier family. Kim was a single mother to three kids, Chris, Anthony, and a daughter I am going to call Emily. As both a victim and a minor, we are going to protect her identity, just as the courts have worked very hard to do. Kim and her children lived in Las Vegas, And she had a sometimes estranged relationship with her family. While her family always wanted Kim there, she would sometimes cut off contact for reasons that they may not have always understood. 
it was hard on them. They had to love her and her children from afar, but their door was always open to her. Kim worked odd jobs to support herself and the kids before she became a manicurist. When her kids needed something, whether it was a material item or money for a school field trip, she made it happen. Her son Chris would later say that while Kim did use drugs, she kept that part of her life outside of the house and away from her children. She shielded and protected them from that part of her life the best she could. Unfortunately, what she couldn't do was protect them when a new man came into their lives. In about 1997, Kim and her children were living in a mobile home park in Las Vegas when she met Timmy Weber, who went by TJ. He was a maintenance man at the park, and they started dating when Kim was about 33 and Tim was 23. At the time they started dating, Kim's kids were 9-year-old Emily, 10-year-old Anthony, and 12-year-old Chris. For the next five years, TJ and Kim's relationship would be on again, off again, with TJ moving in and out of the home. Some of the times he moved out were times he was sent to jail. TJ had a criminal record, mostly related to property crimes, things like robbery and grand larceny. The closest thing to violence on his record was from May 2000, when TJ was arrested for domestic violence and home invasion. It stemmed from an incident where Kim was inside the trailer and TJ was outside. There was a gated fence that went around the property and Kim had locked it. She also had a friend inside the trailer who she was talking to and TJ didn't like this. Out of probably jealousy, he began screaming at Kim from the other side of the fence, screaming at her about having someone else over. TJ eventually went over the fence and kicked in the front door, which is where the home invasion portion of the charges occurred. He and Kim then had a fight where they physically struggled over some keys and the police were called. When they arrived, TJ was arrested. And because he was on parole for other charges, this was also a parole violation, so he stayed locked up. His eventual conviction for this incident ended up being a malicious destruction of property, not domestic violence. This is a misdemeanor. And he was released in February 2001. It's not clear when Kim and TJ reconciled after his release, but he did what he often did. He convinced her that he was a changed man. Later in 2001, Kim and TJ split up again, but in early March 2002, they were back together. And it was around this time that Kim reestablished contact with her family. Her father and stepmother were thrilled to hear from her. It turned out that she was actually working just a few miles from their home. After talking it over, they decided that Kim and the kids would move out of their trailer, the one they had been living in for the last several years, 
and instead live in one that her father owned. It would give them a bit of a financial break. On March 31st for Easter, Kim, TJ, and the three children all went over to her father's house to have Easter dinner with the family. The kids were now 14, 15, and 17, so their extended family was thrilled to have them back in their lives. This was the first time they met TJ. But Kim's family didn't really talk to him that day. They were focused on Kim. They were focused on the children, especially after so many years being out of touch. Her boyfriend wasn't really who they were there for. But Kim introduced him. She spoke highly of him. And the family thought he seemed fine. He was a little quiet, but he was also meeting her family for the first time. What Kim's family didn't recognize was that this time to reconnect would be the last time they would see her. On April 3rd, 2002, the family was preparing to move to their new home. Kim had already pulled the kids out of school. She was going to enroll them at the new school. So the kids were home that day helping pack up. In the afternoon and the evening, Emily's friends from her old school started calling to say goodbye, to tell her that they were going to miss her, and all of that. One of the friends who called that evening was a teenage boy. Kim was not home, and TJ answered the phone when he called. Instead of giving the phone to Emily, he cursed the kid out for calling and hung up on him. Emily, who was embarrassed and appalled, told him not to talk to her friends like that. TJ then started spitting out racial slurs about the boy, who was Black, and then called Emily a hoe and accused her of sleeping with the other teenager. This wasn't the first argument Emily had ever had with TJ, particularly when it came to boys. TJ appeared to be very overprotective, not wanting Emily to date, not wanting her to have teen boys even around her. When her brother's friends would come over, TJ wouldn't allow them near her. They would have to stay in Chris and Anthony's bedroom, while Emily had to stay in the living room. According to TJ, these teen boys were all creeps, and that is why Emily couldn't even speak with them. So it wasn't the first time TJ acted oddly about boys in 14-year-old Emily's life, but it was by far the biggest blow-up she had ever dealt with, and she was very upset. When Kim came home that night, Emily told her all about what happened and what TJ had said and how he had called her a hoe. Kim was angry. She told Emily that no one had a right to call her names like that. Then Kim and TJ got into a fight over it. Not just the name calling, but TJ's overall behavior towards Emily as a teen girl wanting to date. Kim told him, Emily was a teenager. Dating was going to happen. He needed to deal with it. After the argument, TJ went to apologize to Emily, but she told him she did not accept his apology and she refused to talk to him or give him a hug or really acknowledge him. By the morning of April 4th, the next day, 
everyone's tempers had seemed to have cooled off, even though Emily was still hurt. But things were calm enough that Kim left to run errands, and she stopped by her friend Robin's house. While visiting with Robin, Kim told her about the argument the night before. She said she told TJ that Emily was going to have boyfriends and that she was going to date and that he needed to stop acting like Emily's possessive boyfriend and start acting like the father figure he was supposed to be. Back at the home, 15-year-old Anthony left to go skateboarding while 17-year-old Chris was already at a friend's house. He had spent the night there. So that left 14-year-old Emily and 28-year-old TJ home together. Emily was sitting on the couch watching TV when TJ told her to give him a hug. She refused. She was still upset about what happened the night before. She told him she wanted to go see her boyfriend. At this, TJ walked across the room and shut the front door. Then he went to the couch where he pinned Emily down and using duct tape, taped her hands behind her back. First, he forced her into her bedroom where she was screaming. He told her to shut up and grabbed more duct tape to wrap around her mouth and head. Then he pulled her into Anthony's room where he hogtied her ankles to her wrists. He told her he would kill her if she tried to leave or screamed and that she would stay tied up until her mother returned home. TJ then left turning up the radio really loudly on his way out, very likely to drown out any noise Emily did make. Emily was alone in the room for what she believed was about 45 minutes. There are receipts that TJ went to a Walgreens and he checked out at 11.39 that morning. He had bought three rolls of duct tape, and this may have been the time frame that Emily was alone. Though she struggled against the restraints, she was helpless. TJ had used way too much tape for her to even be able to get a little loose. When TJ came back, he cut the duct tape off of Emily, accidentally cutting her hand in the process. He then ordered her to the back bedroom where he raped her. Emily looked at the clock, and it was around 12.30. After that, TJ had her go take a shower. When Emily came back in the room, wrapped in a towel, TJ pulled out the duct tape again to bind her. He taped her hands together, her legs, and taped her head and body to the ladder of her bunk bed so she couldn't move. He tried to shove a sock in her mouth, but she kept spitting it out, so he used a strip of duct tape instead. He then put a sheet over her and said he would be back in five minutes. He was going to check on Anthony. On TJ's way out, he turned up the TV really loud, again, likely to drown out any noise she made. Meanwhile, Anthony had met up with Chris at his friend Joey's apartment. Chris fell asleep on the couch at some point, so Anthony and Joey rode their skateboards to a gas station to buy some snacks. Around 2.30 p.m., they were back near the apartment when Anthony saw TJ sitting in his car nearby. So he went over to the car and talked to him for a few minutes. 
Anthony then went over to Joey and said he would be back in a bit. He had to go check in with his mom, and she had $10 for him. He expected to be back within the hour. Another friend came over around this time, so both he and Joey saw Anthony carry his skateboard and get into TJ's car. It was roughly 30 minutes after Anthony left with TJ that Chris woke up from his nap on the couch, and he decided to head home. By the time he got there, it was around 3.30, and he found all of the doors were locked but it also didn't look like anyone was home, except that he heard the TV in Emily's room blaring. Chris went around the house to try to find a way in, an open window or something, and he eventually knocked on Emily's window to see if she was in there. She heard the knock and started screaming for help. But between the TV, the duct tape, and the window being closed, Chris didn't know what he was hearing. He heard something, and it alarmed him, but he wasn't sure what. So Chris ran back to Joey's apartment to get help. He and a friend named Kareem went back to the trailer where they heard that noise again. They heard Emily still trying to scream for help. Chris broke a window and crawled through it, and then he unlocked the front door for Kareem. They then found a terrified and traumatized Emily in her room. Chris took the tape off of her mouth and asked her who did this, and she said it was TJ, and if TJ found them, he would kill them all. While Kareem finished getting the duct tape off of Emily, Chris went to their phone for help. It was a landline. The phone was unplugged, so he plugged it back in, but when he called 911, for whatever reason, he ended up getting a recorded message that put him on hold. He didn't know how much time they had before TJ came back, so Emily threw on some clothes and the three ran for it. Chris had Emily take his bicycle to get to Joey's apartment faster while he and Kareem went on foot. Chris and Kareem must have been terrified for their own lives at this point. But they knew Emily was in the most danger, and she was the most traumatized, and they made sure she got out of there as quickly as possible. Emily was safely hiding in Joey's apartment when Chris and Kareem got there. But Joey didn't have a phone, so Chris ran to the gas station and called 911 from a payphone while Kareem stood outside the apartment, keeping watch. That's when TJ drove up to the apartment. He saw Kareem and asked if he had seen Emily. Kareem said no, he hadn't, and TJ believed him. He drove off. Shortly after he drove off, a police car drove down the street, so Kareem flagged him down. The officer pulled over right away. He saw how frantic Kareem appeared. Emily came out and spoke with the officer, still upset, still crying, and she told him what had happened, that she had been tied up for hours and that TJ had sexually assaulted her. 
The sergeant could see Emily's wrists were red and irritated, and there was adhesive residue. Chris then showed up at the apartment after having called 911. Emily kept saying that they needed to talk to Kim. She thought Kim was at the new trailer getting things set up, but they didn't have a phone there yet, and neither Chris nor Emily knew their mom's cell phone number by memory. More troopers had shown up at this point, and two of them went with Chris and Emily to the trailer to get Kim's cell phone number from inside so they could call her. This was around 4 p.m. The kids waited outside while the police secured the home and made sure no one, especially TJ, was in there. What they found was more horrible than they could have imagined. In a bedroom, they found 15-year-old Anthony dead on the bed, bound with duct tape. He had a plastic bag over his head, as well as weights placed on his back and legs. The autopsy would confirm the worst-case scenario. Removing the bag, they found that Anthony's face and head had also been duct taped. Anthony had signs that he had fought hard to get free and his death by asphyxiation would have been torturously slow. Another bedroom door was locked, so the police kicked it open. In the closet, they found 38-year-old Kim's nude body inside a Rubbermaid container. A sheet was tied around her ankles, and a plastic bag was over her head. However, the autopsy showed that Kim had died due to blunt force trauma to the head. There were signs of an attempted strangulation with ligature, but nothing was found at the scene that would have been the weapon used. Kim's death would have been awful and terrifying, but quicker than Anthony's. Chris and Emily were still waiting outside as the police were uncovering the crime in the trailer. One of the troopers finally came out of the house, and the kids knew from the look on his face that something was very, very wrong. Emily remembered being asked what color hair her mom had. When she answered that she had red hair, they were told that Kim and Anthony were both dead and everyone knew who the number one suspect was. It was T.J. Weber. Chris and Kareem getting Emily out of the trailer had very clearly saved her life. Inside the home, in the trash, they found that receipt for all that duct tape that was used, the duct tape T.J. bought that day. They also found a card Kim had written to T.J. It was dated April 3rd, The day before the murders, it had been ripped up and thrown in the trash. It read, TJ, I love you with all my heart. I do not like some of the things you do, but that does not mean I don't love you. I downright hate some of the things you do. TJ, you are so smart, so cute, so giving, so good, but you are so far away from me, it hurts. Please come back. I don't want to lose you. I can only take so much pain, the kids don't need any. If you love me, show me, please. Love, Kim. Love you, TJ. P.S. I don't have all the answers, but I'll look for them if you let me. 
and TJ's fingerprints were all over this evidence. His palm print was found on Emily's bunk bed and on a roll of black plastic trash bags. His fingerprints were on the rolls of duct tape and on the Walgreens bag, which was in the trash with the receipt. And even more incriminating, his fingerprint was on the duct tape wrapped around Anthony's ankle. More evidence was found when Emily, this poor 14-year-old girl, was taken to the hospital for a rape kit. The swabs matched TJ's DNA. What they didn't have, though, was TJ Weber. He was on the run. Emily was interviewed on the night of the murders. Again, this poor child. She was asked if TJ had ever previously sexually abused her or raped her, and she said no. When they interviewed her four days later, she again repeated that she had not been abused by TJ prior to that day. And that was a lie. The truth was that TJ had begun sexually abusing Emily shortly after he started dating Kim. With how soon the grooming and abuse started, you have to wonder if he targeted Kim for a relationship so he could get access to Emily. And with how successful he was at convincing Emily to stay quiet, you also have to wonder if this was not the first child he groomed. As a stepfather to the children, people noticed that TJ gave Emily way more attention than he did to the boys. He took her out places, he bought her gifts, he really seemed more attached to her than the boys. Some commented later that he treated Emily almost like a girlfriend, though no one said they suspected abuse. So while this may seem like a red flag in hindsight, it wasn't at the time. At the time, it looked like he was just playing favorites. There is absolutely no evidence Kim knew about the abuse, and most signs point to her not knowing. Everyone has said that she would never have stayed with TJ if she knew. While she did not always date the greatest men, obviously, she never would have looked the other way if her kids were being hurt like that. And if we look back, even taking away people's view of Kim, we can see moments in here that I think illustrate that Kim didn't know. If you remember, TJ and Emily had a fight and he called her a hoe. Kim got into a yelling match with him over it. He called her daughter a name. And Kim was right there ready to tell him it wasn't okay and she wasn't going to let it slide. That's name calling. Imagine if she knew he was abusing Emily. And if you think about how Kim characterized this argument to her friend Robin, she said she told TJ he needed to stop acting like a jealous boyfriend and act more like a father. Kim certainly wouldn't have told Robin that if she was covering up sexual abuse happening in the home. It's sad that Kim didn't even realize how close she was getting at TJ's true perception of this situation, his twisted, sick perception that he had some sort of relationship with Emily. Kim didn't know, but you have to wonder if TJ was spooked by this, by how close Kim was getting to the truth. 
And here Emily was, still trying to keep the secret from the police. It's completely understandable. TJ was on the run at this point. The police didn't know where he was, and they couldn't find him. Not only did Emily have the feelings of shame that too often abuse survivors carry, she was terrified. TJ had murdered her mother and her brother, and he had threatened to kill her, and he was still out there. Emily was protecting so many layers of herself when she told the investigators the abuse was not ongoing. But the police soon learned the truth. During her second interview, Emily mentioned that TJ had credit cards in various names, and a friend of Kim's said TJ was very computer literate. She believed he may have even been running some type of scam on the internet. So the police got a warrant for his computer. There was a concern that TJ had a fake identity or two that he had IDs and credit cards with that he could use undetected while on the run. While the computer examiner was going through files trying to find any aliases he had, he found evidence of child pornography. The police went back to the judge and they got a warrant specifically to look for that. And that's when they found proof TJ's abuse of Emily was not a one-time thing because they found photos of her on the computer. Finding TJ and getting him in custody would go a long way for Emily to feel safe enough to open up to the police. They also had a double murderer out there with nothing to lose, so they brought in the FBI to begin tracking him. TJ's car was found in a casino parking lot on April 10th, six days after the murder. Inside the car, they found Anthony's skateboard and a parking slip from April 4th. So they knew he had ditched his car right away. They then learned he took a bus to Bakersfield, California on the 5th. That same day, he used his ATM card at Greyhound bus terminals in Fresno and Sacramento. They were able to confirm it was him using the card because they had security footage from inside the Sacramento terminal. The next day, TJ used the card in Portland, Oregon, and then two days later in Seattle. Using phone records as well, they learned that TJ called a costume shop. When the police contacted the shop, they confirmed that someone matching TJ's description had bought a fake mustache. TJ was then tracked to Boise, Idaho, and then Fremont, Utah. On April 11th, he made a call from Salt Lake City, but on the 12th, his phone was used in the Las Vegas area. TJ being on the run was quite literal. He kept moving. By the time they figured out which city he was in, he was already on a bus to the next one. He didn't just go and hide out in one place, and that's exactly what made him so hard to catch. During the time TJ was a fugitive, Emily and Chris were staying with a middle school teacher named Bill Froman and his wife. Bill knew the family, and God bless middle school teachers for so many reasons, but extra for this teacher who opened his home to two teens in crisis. 
On April 14th, a memorial service was scheduled for Anthony and Kim. Chris, again, just 17 years old, had to go back to the home to get clothes for Anthony and to get some keepsakes to bury with him. Bill went with Chris around 11.30 in the morning. Worried for their safety, they both carried baton-style clubs. It seemed unlikely TJ would return to the scene of the crime while being on the run for so long, but they certainly weren't going to take any chances. When they got to the trailer, they found that the landlord had locked the gate. Bill and Chris decided to pry it open, which made some noise. Bill went into the house first, and then he turned to tell Chris to hurry up. That's when TJ rushed out from behind the door and hit Bill on the head with a bat. Bill was knocked to the ground, and TJ took another swing at him. As improbable and reckless as it seemed, TJ had, in fact, returned to the scene of the crime. Bill got to his feet, and the two were in a full-on fight, with TJ yelling that he was going to kill Bill, he was going to kill Chris. Chris used his club and managed to hit TJ a few times until TJ knocked him down. Bill used this chance to run to his truck to get a crowbar to use as a weapon, and TJ and Chris continued fighting. Bill couldn't find the crowbar, but saw TJ come out of the trailer. TJ yelled for Bill to give him the truck or he was going to kill Chris. Bill, already in the truck, had a different idea. He put the truck into gear and tried to run TJ down. TJ managed to get out of the way and ran back inside, but that didn't stop Bill. He drove his truck into the front of the trailer while honking his horn and yelling for someone to call 911. He was hoping to make enough of a spectacle that people would be alerted that something serious was going on. Chris came running out of the back of the house with TJ in pursuit, but rather than follow Chris, TJ kept running and disappeared again. Chris hopped into the truck, and he and Bill drove around to look for TJ. But they were injured. Chris was bleeding, and Bill started feeling too woozy to drive. He ended up needing stitches in two places, and he had a fractured skull. TJ was injured, too he left a trail of blood in the direction he ran off. There was a massive swarm of the neighborhood to search for TJ, but it seemed like he just vanished, and he sort of did. TJ later became best known not for the terrible crimes he committed on this family, but for how he got away. Under Las Vegas are about 300 miles of underground tunnels. They're designed to drain water to prevent flash flooding in the city. Because Vegas doesn't get a lot of rain, the tunnels are dry much of the time. They're also not patrolled by police. After TJ ran the second time, he used the tunnels to get away without being seen on the street. Then on April 28th, a neighbor of the new mobile home that Kim and her kids were supposed to move into noticed something odd. The window of one of the bedrooms had a black plastic trash bag put up, preventing anyone from seeing in. The bag hadn't been there the day before. 
This is the trailer owned by Kim's father. So the neighbor was familiar with what was going on. Everyone was, really. This had even been on America's Most Wanted, so she knew they were looking for a killer. Suspicious, she called the police. When the police arrived, they found that TJ was inside. They ordered him to come out, which he refused to do, and then they told him, that's fine, we'll send in the dogs, and suddenly TJ had a change of heart and surrendered. After TJ was in custody, the police interviewed Emily again on April 30th. They told her that they had found the photographs on the computer, and she told them the whole story and about how the abuse began when she was just nine or 10 years old. She told the police she was scared of TJ, so I really hope knowing that he was locked up brought her some peace or at least some space that she needed to start healing. 28-year-old T.J. Weber was facing a total of 17 felonies. Among them were two charges for murder, two for attempted murder for the attack on Chris and Bill, a kidnapping charge, and nine charges related to the sexual abuse and assaults on Emily. It was quickly announced the death penalty would be pursued. The trial took place in February 2003. I think we've already laid out the state's case pretty well. TJ did it. That's the case. While a motive is nice to present to the jury, that was a piece we can only speculate on. TJ didn't just snap. After binding Emily, he left, he went to the store, and he came back. He paused his day long enough to buy more duct tape at the store, enough duct tape for more than just Emily. He drove over to Anthony and lured him into the car with the promise his mother had some money for him. After Emily escaped, he went looking for her. He may have snapped that morning when he initially attacked Emily, but from that point on, everything was planned. I think the best guess is that this was an attempted family annihilation. TJ realized he was losing control of Emily. He feared his pedophilia and years of abuse of Emily would be exposed, so he decided to kill the family to stop that from happening. Except when Chris came home, TJ wasn't there. Instead, Chris found Emily, and the two of them made a run for it. It's when TJ realized Emily escaped and could identify him that he took off. Whether the prosecution could pinpoint a motive or not, the defense had an uphill battle. For one, they were trying to defend multiple charges at the same time. And two, they had a guilty client. There's only so much you can do with that. In the end, breaking down the aggravating factors was their best shot because TJ was going to be found guilty. What they wanted to do was save him from death row by showing that the murderers did not qualify for that sentence. Maybe one day he would even have a shot at parole. The jury did deliberate for five days, but my guess is the deliberations took so long because they had 17 individual counts to go over. I don't think they were uncertain of TJ's guilt, particularly not the murder and attempted murder charges. 
but they did come back as expected with guilty verdicts across the board. The case then moved to the penalty phase. TJ's maximum possible sentence was the death penalty. The lowest he was facing would see him eligible for parole when he was around 70 years old. So he was really arguing for the right to grow old in prison. TJ's full criminal history was entered, including some juvenile arrests. Like I said, they were mostly property crimes burglaries, possession of stolen property, and grand larceny. There were not major signs of violence in his past. Chris spoke, and so did Kim's sister, when they gave their victim impact statements. Emily, by this point, was living out of state with a relative. Chris talked about how Anthony was a popular kid, he had big dreams in life, and he also talked about his mom and how she would pick up an extra shift just to make sure the kids had the nice clothes they wanted and just how she did everything to show that she loved them. The aggravating factors the state were pushing were largely to do with Anthony's murder due to how torturous it was. And there's really no arguing against that. So the defense decided to try to present enough mitigating factors to somehow outweigh the aggravating ones. They had a psychologist who spoke with TJ and also his mother. They found that he did not have a documented history of violence, either violence he perpetrated or was perpetrated against him. His childhood did have times of instability. They moved around a lot. His mother was a single mother. She was trying to keep them housed and fed. TJ's mother said that even though there was no documented abuse, his father did abuse him when he was a toddler. And then the father went on to spend several years of TJ's childhood in prison. So there was an estrangement there. And that wasn't the only family separation he dealt with as a young child. TJ's mother went to jail for a period of time when he was around five or six years old. While these things are noted, They're hardly the hallmarks of the childhood trauma that I personally expect to see from someone who did what TJ did to Emily, to Kim, and to Anthony. In the end, the jury found that there were several mitigating circumstances and several aggravating factors in both Kim and Anthony's murders. They determined that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating ones in both cases. They sentenced him to life without parole for Kim's murder and gave him the death penalty for Anthony's. All of TJ's appeals have been denied. But that does not mean he will be put to death anytime soon or at all. Since 1977, when the death penalty was reinstated in Nevada, around 160 people have been sentenced to death in the state. Only 12 executions have been carried out, and 11 of those were after the convicted voluntarily stopped pursuing any post-conviction relief and did nothing to prevent it from going forward. They say that in the state of Nevada, you are only put to death if you consent to it. And in spite of spending $860,000 building a new execution chamber in 2016, 
Nevada has not put anyone to death since 2006, and they do not currently have any executions scheduled. I have been open on this show that I am against the death penalty. This certainly isn't a case I would bring to you in the hopes of converting you over to my way of thinking. But there's a line from the movie The Contender where one of the characters says, principles only mean something if you stick by them when they're inconvenient. And when I see a case where someone does the things that T.J. Weber did, I have to do a quick inventory to remind myself why I'm against the death penalty. Not every death penalty case is going to be one where we can champion for the defendant. But rather, if we are against the death penalty, we have to say, yes, we are against it, even when it's levied on someone who doesn't seem deserving of even the slightest mercies. And I can confidently say, T.J. Weber is one of those people. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 